With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 67. It's titled, What to Do when an investment loses money. Despite our best efforts to thoughtfully select investments that only go up in value, there are times when investments fall in price and we lose money. Perhaps those losses are only on paper because we haven't sold the underperforming investment. But I find paper losses feel just as bad as realized losses. In fact, in some way, paper losses feel worse due to the fear and angst that the investment could fall further, worsening the loss. Realized losses are painful, but at least the pain and the regret can be truncated by selling the investment and recognizing the loss. You you have the, 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 the regret, but then it gradually fades with time. Yet numerous academic studies show investors are more likely to hold on to their losing investments and sell their winners. And that, in behavioral economics, is called the disposition effect. And it's not a rational response. The rational response would be to keep your winning investments so you don't have to pay capital gains tax on them and sell the losers so that you can write off, from a tax perspective, the capital loss. But we don't like to do that. And why is that? Well, by selling the profitable investments, we can lock in a gain and it essentially pats ourselves on the back. We have that that satisfaction of being, in our minds, a successful investor. Whereas by not selling the losers, there's always a possibility that, yeah, it might fall in price, but it could rebound. If you give it enough time, we'll get it right and the investment will come back. Now, this disposition effect was written about by Naraj Armanani in a paper, an academic paper, where he did a review of all the academic studies around the world where that essentially confirmed this disposition, disposition effect. And he says, here's his quote, Individuals in their inability to compute precisely the Bayesian probabilities of situations tend to take shortcuts in their computation and use rules of thumb that they're comfortable with. Now, what does he mean by Bayesian probabilities? Well, in a completely utilitarian and rational world, we should be able to mathematically calculate all the possible outcomes and probabilities of specific events, kind of do a decision tree and know which would be the optimal course and then choose it. Unfortunately, the world is far too complex, and there's so many hidden linkages as part of this complex adaptive system, this system, which we've talked about in earlier episodes, and because of that, we use these shortcuts or these rules of thumb, which are called heuristics. Now, heuristics are good. Rules of thumb are very, very helpful because it helps us deal with an increasingly complex 
world. And we talked about that in episode 34 that was titled Rules of Thumb. But rules of thumb can also have some side effects, some biases. And this disposition effect is a bias. As irrational humans, we have certain behavioral bias that are an outfall of our heuristics. An example would be the recency bias. The recency bias is the propensity to put more weight on what just occurred and assumed it's going to occur again. An example would be the Great Recession. There are those investors that were so rocked by the Great Recession and the market losses that they believe it is going to happen and have believed it was going to happen again quite soon. And we're prepared for it. Meanwhile, we've been in this secular bull market since 2009. Well, the disposition effect is an example of that type of bias. And we all suffer through it. Now, I have a losing investment right now. And it's, it's about 10% of my liquid portfolio. And it feels awful. And, and it's made worse by the fact that I encouraged my parents to buy this same investment. And they have. And I've shared with it on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. So we have about 200 members that have seen this investment. And I've talked about it in the past and why it's underperforming. But it still does not feel very good. And I thought it would be helpful to kind of walk through the questions that I ask myself when I have an investment that's underperforming and to sort of confirm to myself that I'm not suffering from the disposition effect, that I'm not refusing to sell this investment because I don't want to face the regret and lock in those losses. The first question I ask when I have an underperforming investment is, why did I buy it and has the thesis changed? Now, this particular investment is called Master Limited Partnerships, or MLPs for short. And I bought them because they have a return driver that differs from other holdings in my portfolio. And that's really one reason I add an investment, because Diversification really means having multiple return drivers. Things that drive the expected performance over time differs from other elements in your portfolio. In In the case of MLPs, they're energy infrastructure investments. More specifically, they're midstream energy infrastructure investments in that they're invested in companies that manufacture or run oil and gas pipelines, and storage facilities. And they're like a toll booth on the highway in that they collect these fees or they collect fees from oil companies to move and store oil and natural gas. And they collect those fees irrespective of energy prices. And so I like the fact that the returns for this particular investment were it's primarily fee income providing energy infrastructure, the oil and gas industry, which has been expanding quite rapidly over the past eight to 10 years. I was also attracted to the investment because it is an income-oriented investment. The dividend yields are over 6%, which is much higher than bonds, much higher than real estate investment trust. 
And not only is the dividend yield high, but the dividend yield growth rate was also high. So we have an asset class with a dividend yield of over 6%. And growing over the past five years, they've grown those dividends at 6%. And that theoretically equates to an expected return of 12% per year. Pretty attractive. That's the theory. But that's actually what has happened in practice. Over the past five years on an annualized basis and on a, and 10 years on an annualized basis, through June 30th, 2015, MLPs, as measured by the Illyrian MLP index, returned 11.5%. Unfortunately, MLPs are also quite volatile. So while the asset class returned 11.4% annualized over the past 10 years, so to be more specific, so the annualized return was 11.5% for the five years ended June 30th. It was 11.4% for the 10 years ending June 30th. But in 2008, the Illyrian MLP index declined 37%, along with other, other asset classes. And then in 2009, it gained 76%. And there were other years when the index gained between 4% and 40%. So the theory is it's going gonna, it's gonna to return 12%. In practice, it goes all over the place. And then last year, the year ending July 24, 2015, they've declined over 25%. Why are they so volatile? Well, it's a relatively new asset class that are misunderstood by many investors. There's a lot of investors invested in MLPs simply for the yield, and then, not really how it, because it is volatile, they tend to panic. Investors go through periods of panic and fear, followed by periods of exuberance. That means investors are constantly reappraising the value of MLPs. So even though the yields, the dividends have been steady, the distributions growth has been relatively steady, the value investors place on that income stream and its growth can vary dramatically. And so when I look at why I bought them, I bought them for a particular return driver, collecting fee income, high dividend. I recognize that they were volatile. But even with the drop in oil prices, the U.S. is going going to continue to build out its energy infrastructure. If we step back and we look at the trend, are we going to stop using oil? No, we're not. We're going to continue to have a demand for oil, particularly as the undeveloped or emerging markets continue to develop. So as I look out in the decades ahead, there's going to be a demand for oil. At the same time, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find oil in terms of supply. In fact, if we look over the past few years, the actual supply of oil, all the new supply, the incremental supply has come from the U.S., Outside the U.S., production has essentially been flat. And so it's, it's harder and harder to find sources of oil. And one reason the U- that's driving the U.S. renaissance in oil is new technologies, such as horizontal drilling. drilling. Fracking has freed up more oil in places that previously have been hard to access. Now, you have constant demand, supply imbalances, or imbalances, and, and sometimes it's imbalanced, but that certainly impacts it. But the ultimate thesis for buying the investment was energy 
usage in terms of oil and natural gas is not going away. There are huge projects in the works as the oil and gas pipelines and other facilities continue to be built out in the U.S. I like the attractive yield. And when I look at it, the investment thesis hasn't changed. So the next question I ask is, what happens if this asset class falls further? Will it undermine my lifestyle? It's a lot easier to hold an underperforming investment if it isn't a huge portion of your portfolio. And I try to scale my investments so that no investment is a disproportionate portion. Now, 10% is a lot. So if something is 10%, and this is of my liquid portfolio, so I'm excluding my private investments, such as real estate, private capital, etc. But of my liquid portfolio, it's about 10%. So if it's lost 20, that's about a two percentage point loss contribution to my overall liquid portfolio. That doesn't feel very good, but it still isn't going to impact my day-to-day ability to cover my living expenses. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The next question I ask is, which mental account is this investment classified? Now, mental accounting was developed by Richard Thaler. Thaler, T-H-A-L-E-R. And it is another aspect of sort of these biases or the way that we use heuristics or rules of thumb 
or other mechanism to make sense of an extremely complex world. And there's, he gives three components to mental accounting. And there's an academic paper, and I'll link to it, where he talks about that. The first is how outcomes are perceived and experienced. When I have an investment, such as MLPs, that are losing 20 or 25%, I can perceive and experience that negative outcome in different ways. I can be heavily invested and beat myself up and say, I made a huge mistake. I can't believe I chose an investment that fell in value. Or I can recognize that nobody can predict the future. There was no way I could say, even though historically MLPs have not been highly correlated with oil prices, in other words, they've not moved in tandem with energy prices historically, this time they did. And I could have beat myself up and said, I should have known that they would go down because everybody would think oil is falling and so we're going to stop building out and transporting oil. And they have fallen in in tandem and sympathy. I couldn't have known that. So how outcomes are perceived and experienced is one aspect of mental accounting. A second is the assignment of activities to specific accounts. We do in our head these mental budgets. and, And probably a great example is, I'm very comfortable paying, let's say, $50 to take my, my spouse, Lapril, out to dinner. So $50 is, in my mind, what a restaurant should cost. But there might be some other budget category where I, I just hate paying more than $20 for it. And it could be an item of food at the store. And so even though I, I'll pay $50 to go out to eat, to pay $50 for some out-of-season fruit, uh, a box of it, and I'm guess a really poor example, it won't let me do it. In other words, I have these, we have these implicit budgets, these, these mental accounts. Physically, the dollars are the same. But mentally, we might be willing to spend a large amount in one category, but if we switch and try to spend that same large amount in another category, we feel regret for doing so. A third aspect of mental accounting is frequency which accounts are evaluated. Now, this is an example so for, for, well, I'm getting a great example in terms of my investment portfolio. When I have an underperforming investment and, and I've sort of gone through these steps and I recognize that, yeah, the thesis hasn't changed, I still hate to lose money, oftentimes I'll use mental accounting and not look at the state, I'll ignore it. I won't even. I won't even want to know what oil prices have done. And I, I've done that even recently because I have. Not only do I have some MLP exposure, I actually went out a month, a couple months ago, and bought oil futures. And I, I've done episodes on commodities, and I believe we're in a secular bear market for commodities. But I'm also a contrarian. And I like to have different return drivers in my portfolio. And I bought oil because I felt it had bottomed. And I had looked at the technicals and I looked at, you know, after oil has bottomed, typically one year later, it's up 73%. Now, I have no way of knowing that. I have no one has any ability to predict oil prices. So, in some ways, this was a, a complete gamble in terms of oil futures. 
but it's less than 2% of my net worth. I wanted to be contrarian. I've told members of the hub, this is highly speculative. Don't do this. But I did it. And oil has fallen from 60, and now it's down, I think, in the high 40s. I've lost money there. But there, I'm more comfortable losing money. It's in a different mental account because it's in my complete speculative, have no idea how it's going to do. When a different return driver, yeah, it might lose money, but hopefully, historically, the conditions suggest it had bottom and it'll be up over 50 to 70% in a year. That I'm comfortable with. The MLPs were a different mental account. They were in the income, the the highly volatile but income-oriented account that theoretically there is a base. When there's income to something, it's easier to value it and it's easier to project and expect a return because you have the income component and to what extent has that dividend grown over time. Those combined together to come up with an expected return. I knew it was going to be volatile, but it shouldn't have fallen 25%. So back to this third component, it's frequency which counts or evaluated. Sometimes it's easier not to look at your statement or look at the screen to see what the performance is. And that's an advantage of being a a personal investor and not a professional investor. When you're a professional trader, you have to look at the screen all the time. And it leads to perhaps suboptimal decisions. There's a quote by Jeremy Grantham, who is one of my virtual investment mentors. He runs or founded or co-founded a firm called GMO. They invest in multiple asset classes. We at my old firm invested with them in private timber. Here's his quote. The individual is far better positioned to wait patiently for the right pitch while paying no regard to what others are doing which is almost impossible for a professional. Individual investors can ignore what others are doing. They can have use an aspect of mental accounting and not be looking at their statement every day or on the screen. They can if something if they're comfortable with the investment thesis, they can ignore it and be patient and wait for the rebound. Now, the final question I ask when I have an underperforming investment is, am I suffering from the disposition effect? Am I afraid to sell the investment because I will experience regret for making a poor investment choice, for making a mistake? Now, this concept of mistake is interesting because is it a mistake to invest? uh, Well, let me put it this way. You can invest in an individual stock, which I don't, but I have, and when it's gone down... Yeah, that perhaps is a mistake. But if you invest in an ETF or some other type of fund that replicates an asset class and it goes down, is that a mistake? Or is that just what diversification is? If you have different return drivers, there are times when certain drivers will be doing better. There'll be times when others perhaps aren't doing as well, or maybe the driver itself is doing fine, but it's how other investors are valuing that driver. If they're panicking, then the driver or the return could be going down, even though the fundamentals of the companies or those in the asset class are the same. In other words, it's a perception of value. It's not what's going on 
with the fundamentals. And I thought about it and I looked at when I try to buy an investment, I try to do it when conditions are ripe. Oftentimes, perhaps when it's hit an extreme and it's beginning to bounce back. The way that I've even mentioned how I invested in MLPs, I inv- you can invest in master limited partnerships. You can do it through their exchange traded notes. There's like a, an Illyrian MLP exchange traded note. This is for US based investors. Or you can do it like I did through a closed-end fund. I used Kane Anderson, which is a manager that I've invested hundreds of millions of dollars from my formal institutional clients with his manager. I know them well. I went with an active fund here because they could focus specifically on this midstream energy sector. And I bought it when the closed-end fund was attractively priced. And if you go back to episode 18 you can learn what closed-end funds are. So I bought the investment after the, the fund had sold off. I, I went in at an attractive entry point, and it did well for a while, but now the whole thing has gone underwater and is becoming even more attractive. In other words, when I look at the yield of MLPs, their dividend yield relative to their historic average, compared to the yield on bonds, to the yield on real estate investments trusts, that spread is well above its median spread. In other words, it's more attractive today than it was a year ago. If anything, I should be buying more. And I have bought more as it's gone down. But there's a limit to how much I'm willing to lose if I'm already at 10%. But I don't think I'm suffering from a disposition effect. I've put it in the very, very long-term mental account. This is a long-term holding. I'm comfortable with the volatility. I'm collecting the yield. These closed-end funds are yielding, at this point, over 9.5%. And I've invested in this asset class when it has fallen like this before, at least experienced it with my clients. It's uncomfortable, but I'm willing to suffer through. Now, I'm not suggesting you go out and buy MLPs. If you do, you need to contact or at least be aware of the tax consequences. Because if you go out and buy individual MLPs as a U.S. investor, the, the, the way these MLPs work is that the MLPs themselves at the corporate level don't pay taxes because they distribute most of the like 80% or more of the profits get distributed to the shareholders and they're taxed at that level. And so they often, if you buy an individual MLP, they issue a K-1. There's the potential for unrelated business income tax. I'm using it or investing through a closed-end fund that issues a 1099. Some of the exchange-traded notes also do the same thing, issue a 1099. I rarely talk about tax things here, but MLPs are a little tricky when it comes to taxes. So before you go out and buy them, at least be aware of the tax treatment. But they are more attractive today than they are than they were a year ago. I've bought more, but it really, really feels bad to lose money because, again, it's this idea that by losing money, even though you had no idea what's going to happen, you still feel like, gosh, that was not a good investment. Now, is there a circumstance where I would sell the MLPs and recognize the loss? Definitely, if the sector itself, the fundamentals of the individual companies began to deteriorate where they were missing earnings, 
where they weren't able to access capital to grow their distribution rates over time to invest in new projects, yeah, that might change my perception. And I would say, yeah, it, it is a definitely an unfavorable environment. But currently, it is just a perception of investors. And so the valuations are getting cheaper. I would also sell if overall market conditions deteriorated. If the economic and central bank trends deteriorated, where the economy appeared to be falling into a recession. Or if market internals overall became deteriorated. In terms of market internals for all equity-like investments began to deteriorate, where it looked like we were heading into some type of cyclical bear market. And then I would reduce exposure potentially as part of my overall approach to reducing exposure to risky assets when market conditions deteriorate. So I am not a buy and hold and worry investor. Buy, hold, and worry. I'm a mostly buy, mostly hold, but occasionally adapt investor. So I will adjust exposure based on market conditions. Right now, I'm holding and suffering through the master limited partnerships because they're in my long-term, highly volatile, income-oriented mental account. I just won't look at them quite so often. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where I will... You can sign up for my insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you. That's also where I'm emailing a summary article of every episode of the podcast. I generally write an article and I include that in the insider's guide. So sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you have any questions, go ahead and email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. Those of you, I'm going to be in Fort Worth this weekend, weekend of, uh, last weekend of July 2015. If you're listening to that before, that'll be at Podcast Movement. If you're in the area at the conference, hope to see you there. Thanks for all those that have left reviews of the show. Go ahead and please, if you have not done so, I really, really do appreciate the reviews and feedback. You can do that on iTunes and Stitcher, everything I've shared with you. And this episode is for general education only. I've not provided investment advice, so please don't take it as a solicitation to buy specific securities, particularly things I've mentioned regarding MLPs. This is simply general education on the economy, money, and investing. Have a great week.